Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and primatorily narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Well, it's amateur night here on The Mayorzine. First up is the second half of The Amateur by Richard Harding Davis. Davis himself was a journalist for the New York Herald and the Times in London. I'm pretty sure he saw himself in our protagonist, Austin Ford. He was a notable war correspondent, having reported on the Spanish-American War, the Second Boer War, and World War I. He was also a personal friend to President Theodore Roosevelt and was partially responsible for the legends surrounding the Rough Riders. I couldn't find out if he'd done any detective work himself, but by all accounts the man was something of an adventurer, so perhaps there is a little bit of autobiography in the amateur. The Amateur by Richard Harding Davis 2. On the afternoon of their arrival in London, Ford convoyed Mrs. Ashton to an old established private hotel in Craven Street. Here, he explained, you will be within a few hundred yards of the place in which her husband is said to spend his time. I will be living in the same hotel. If I find him, you will know it in ten minutes. The widow gave a little gasp, whether of excitement or of happiness Ford could not determine. Whatever happens, she begged, will you let me hear from you sometimes? You are the only person I know in London, and it's so big it frightens me. I don't want to be a burden, she went on eagerly, but if I can feel you are within call it. What you need, said Ford heartily is less of the doctor's nerve tonic and sleeping drafts, and a little innocent diversion. Tonight I am going to take you to the Savoy to supper. Mrs. Ashton exclaimed delightedly, and then was filled with misgivings. I have nothing to wear, she protested, and over here in the evening the women dress so well. I have a dinner gown, she exclaimed, but it's black. Would that do? Ford assured her nothing could be better. He had a man's vanity in liking a woman with whom he was seen in public to be pretty and smartly dressed, and he felt sure that in black, the blonde beauty of Mrs. Ashton would appear to advantage. They arranged to meet at eleven on the promenade leading to the Savoy supper room, and parted with mutual satisfaction at the prospect. The finding of Harry Ashton was so simple that in its very simplicity it appeared spectacular. On leaving Mrs. Ashton, Ford engaged rooms at the Hotel Cecil. Before visiting his rooms, he made his way to the American bar. He did not go there seeking Harry Ashton. His object was entirely self-centered. His purpose was to drink to himself and to the lights of London. But as though by appointment, the man he had promised to find was waiting for him. As Ford entered the room, at a table facing the door, sat Ashton. There was no mistaking him. He wore a mustache, but it was no disguise. He was the same good-natured, good-looking youth who, in the photograph from under a Panama hat, had smiled upon the world. With a glad cry, Ford rushed toward him. Fancy meeting you! he exclaimed. Mr. Ashton's good-natured smile did not relax. He merely shook his head. Afraid you have made a mistake, he said. The reporter regarded him blankly. 
His face showed his disappointment. Aren't you Charles W. Garrett of New York? he demanded. Not me, said Mr. Ashton. But, Ford insisted in hurt tones, as though he were being trifled with, you have been told you look like him, haven't you? Mr. Ashton's good nature was unassailable. Sorry, he declared. Never heard of him. Ford became garrulous. He could not believe two men could look so much alike. It was a remarkable coincidence. The stranger must certainly have a drink, the drink intended for his twin. Ashton was bored, but accepted. He was well acquainted with the easy good fellowship of his countrymen. The room in which he sat was a meeting place for them. He considered that they were always giving each other drinks, and not only were they always introducing themselves, but saying, Shake hands with my friend, Mr. So-and-so. After five minutes, they showed each other photographs of the children. This one, though as loquacious as the others, seemed better dressed, more wise. He brought to the exile the atmosphere of his beloved Broadway, so Ashton drank to him pleasantly. My name is Sidney Carter, he volunteered. As a poker player skims over the cards in his hand, Ford, in his mind's eye, ran over the value of giving or not giving his right name. He decided that Ashton would not have heard it, and that, if he gave a false one, there was a chance that later Ashton might find out that he had done so. Accordingly, he said, Mine is Austin Ford, and seated himself at Ashton's table. Within ten minutes, the man he had promised to pluck from among the eight million inhabitants of London was smiling sympathetically at his jests and buying a drink. On the steamer, Ford had rehearsed the story with which, should he meet Ashton, he would introduce himself. It was one arranged to fit with his theory that Ashton was a crook. If Ashton were a crook, Ford argued that to at once ingratiate himself in his good graces, he also must be a crook. His plan was to invite Ashton to cooperate with him in some scheme that was openly dishonest. By so doing, he hoped apparently to place himself at Ashton's mercy. He believed if he could persuade Ashton he was more of a rascal than Ashton himself, and an exceedingly stupid rascal, any distrust the bookmaker might feel toward him would disappear. He made his advances so openly, and apparently showed his hand so carelessly, that from being bored, Ashton became puzzled, then interested, and when Ford insisted he should dine with him, he considered it so necessary to find out who the youth might be who was forcing himself upon him that he accepted the invitation. They adjourned to dress, and an hour later, at Ford's suggestion, they met at the Carlton. There, Ford ordered a dinner calculated to lull his newly made friend into a mood suited to confidence, but which had on Ashton exactly the opposite effect. Merely for the pleasure of his company, utter strangers were not in the habit of treating him to strawberries in February and vintage champagne, and in consequence, in Ford's hospitality, he saw only cause for suspicion. If, as he had first feared, Ford was a New York detective, it was most important he should know that. No one better than Ashton understood that, at the moment, his presence in New York meant for the police unalloyed satisfaction and for himself undisturbed solitude but Ford was unlike any detective of his acquaintance, and his acquaintance had been extensive. It was true Ford was familiar with all the habits of Broadway and the Tenderloin, of places with which Ashton was intimate, and of men with whom Ashton had formerly been well acquainted, he talked glibly. But if he were a detective, Ashton considered, they certainly had improved the class. The restaurant into which for the first time Ashton had penetrated, and in which he felt ill at ease, was to Ford, he observed, a matter of course. Evidently, for Ford, it held no terrors. 
He criticized the service, patronized the headwaiters, and grumbled at the food. And when, on leaving the restaurant, an Englishman and his wife stopped at their table to greet him, he accepted their welcome to London without embarrassment. Ashton, rolling his cigar between his lips, observed the incident with increasing bewilderment. You've got some swell friends, he growled. I'll bet you never met them at Healy's. I meet all kinds of people in my business, said Ford. I once sold that man some mining stock, and the joke of it was, he added, smiling knowingly, it turned out to be good. Ashton decided that the psychological moment had arrived. What is your business? he asked. I'm a company promoter, said Ford easily. I thought I told you. I did not tell you that I was a company promoter too, did I? demanded Ashton. No, answered Ford with apparent surprise. Are you? That's funny. Ashton watched for the next move, but the subject seemed no way to interest Ford. Instead of following it up, he began afresh. Have you any money lying idle? he asked abruptly. About a thousand pounds. Ashton recognized that the mysterious stranger was about to disclose both himself and whatever object he had in seeking him out. He cast a quick glance about him. I can always find money, he said guardedly. What's the proposition? With pretended nervousness, Ford leaned forward and began the story he had rehearsed. It was a new version of an old swindle, and to every self-respecting confidence man was well known as the sick engineer game. The plot is very simple. The sick engineer is supposed to be a mining engineer, who, as an expert, has examined a gold mine and reported against it. For his services, the company paid him partly in stock. He falls ill and is at the point of death. While he has been ill, much gold has been found in the mine he examined, and the stock which he considers worthless is now valuable. Of this, owing to his illness, he is ignorant. One confidence man acts the part of the sick engineer, and the other that of a broker, who knows the engineer possesses the stock, but has no money with which to purchase it from him. For a share of the stock, he offers to tell the dupe where it and the engineer can be found. They visit the man, apparently at the point of death, and the dupe gives him money for his stock. Later, the dupe finds the stock is worthless, and the supposed engineer and the supposed broker divide the money he paid for it. In telling the story, Ford pretended he was the broker, and that he thought in Ashton he had found a dupe who would buy the stock from the sick engineer. As the story unfolded, and Ashton appreciated the part Ford expected him to play in it, his emotions were so varied that he was in danger of apoplexy. Amusement, joy, chagrin, and indignation illuminated his countenance. His cigar ceased to burn, and with his eyes opened wide, he regarded Ford in pitying wonder. Wait, he commanded. He shook his head uncomprehendingly. Tell me, he asked, do I look as easy as that, or are you just naturally foolish? Ford pretended to fall into a state of great alarm. I don't understand, he stammered. Why, son, exclaimed Ashton kindly, I was taught that story in the public schools. I invented it. I stopped using it before you cut your teeth. Gee, he exclaimed delightedly. I knew I had grown respectable looking, but I didn't think I was so damned respectable looking as that. He began to laugh silently. So greatly was he amused that the tears shone in his eyes and his shoulders shook. I'm sorry for you, son, he protested, but that's the funniest thing that's come my way in two years. And you buying me hothouse grapes, too, and fancy water. I wish you could see your face, he taunted. Ford pretended to be greatly chagrined. All right, 
he declared roughly. The laugh's on me this time, but just because I lost one trick, don't think I don't know my business. Now that I'm wise to what you are, we can work together and... The face of young Mr. Ashton became instantly grave. His jaws snapped like a trap. When he spoke, his tone was assured and slightly contemptuous. Not with me you can't work, he said. Don't think because I fell down on this, Ford began hotly. I'm not thinking of you at all, said Ashton. You're a nice little fellow, all right, but you have sized me up wrong. I am on the straight and narrow that leads back to little old New York and God's country, and I am warranted not to run off my trolley. The words were in the vernacular, but the tone in which the young man spoke rang so confidently that it brought to Ford a pleasant thrill of satisfaction. From the first, he had found in the personality of the young man something winning and likable, a shrewd manliness and tolerant good humor. His eyes may have shown his sympathy, for in sudden confidence Ashton leaned nearer. It's like this, he said. Several years ago, I made a bad break, and about a year later, they got onto me and I had to cut and run. In a month, the law of limitation lets me loose and I can go back. And you can bet I'm going back. I will be on the bowsprit of the first boat. I've had all I want of the Fugitive from Justice game, thank you, and I've taken good care to keep a clean bill of health so that I won't have to play it again. They've been trying to get me for several years, especially the Pinkertons. They have chased me all over Europe, chased me with all kinds of men, sometimes with women. They've tried everything except bloodhounds. At first I thought you were a pink. That's why I interrupted Ford, exploding derisively. That's good. That's one on you. He ceased laughing and regarded Ashton kindly. How do you know I'm not? He asked. For an instant, the face of the bookmaker grew a shade less red, and his eyes searched those of Ford in a quick agony of suspicion. Ford continued to smile steadily at him, and Ashton breathed with relief. I'll take a chance with you, he said, and if you are as bad a detective as you are a sport, I needn't worry. They both laughed, and with sudden mutual liking, each raised his glass and nodded. But they haven't got me yet, continued Ashton, and unless they get me in the next thirty days, I'm free. So you needn't think that I'll help you. It's never again for me. The first time, that was the fault of the crowd I ran with. The second time, that would be my fault, and there ain't going to be any second time. He shook his head doggedly, and with squared shoulders leaned back in his chair. If it only breaks right for me, he declared, I'll settle down in one of those own-your-own homes, 45 minutes from Broadway, and never leave the wife and the baby. The words almost brought Ford to his feet. He had forgotten the wife and the baby. He endeavored to explain his surprise by a sudden assumption of incredulity. Fancy you married, he exclaimed. Married, protested Ashton. I'm married to the finest little lady that ever wore skirts, and in 37 days I'll see her again. Thirty-seven days, he repeated impatiently. Gee, that's a hell of a long time. Ford studied the young man with increased interest. That he was speaking sincerely, from the heart, there seemed no possible doubt. Ashton frowned and his face clouded. I've not been able to treat her just right, he volunteered. If she wrote me, the letters might give them a clue. And I don't write her because I don't want her to know all my troubles until they're over. But I know, he added. That five minutes talk will set it all right. That is, if she still feels about me the way I feel about her. The man crushed his cigar in his fingers and threw the pieces on the floor. That's what's been the worst, he exclaimed bitterly. 
not hearing, not knowing. It's been hell. His eyes, as he raised them, were filled with suffering, deep and genuine. Ford rose suddenly. Let's go down to the Savoy for supper, he said. Supper, growled Ashton. What's the use of supper? Do you suppose cold chicken and a sardine can keep me from thinking? Ford placed his hand on the other's shoulder. You come with me, he said kindly. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to bring you a piece of luck. Don't ask me any questions, he commanded hurriedly. Just take my word for it. They had sat so late over their cigars that when they reached the restaurant on the embankment, the supper room was already partly filled, and the corridors and lounge were brilliantly lit and gay with well-dressed women. Ashton regarded the scene with gloomy eyes. Since he had spoken of his wife, he had remained silent, chewing savagely on a fresh cigar. But Ford was grandly excited. He did not know exactly what he intended to do. He was prepared to let events direct themselves, but of two things he was assured. Mrs. Ashton loved her husband, and her husband loved her. As the god in the car who was to bring them together, he felt a delightful responsibility. The young men left the coat room and came down the short flight of steps that leads to the wide lounge of the restaurant. Ford, slightly in advance, searching with his eyes for Mrs. Ashton, found her seated alone in the lounge, evidently waiting for him. At the first glance, she was hardly to be recognized. Her low-cut dinner gown of black satin that clung to her like a wet bathrobe was the last word of the new fashion, and since Ford had seen her, her blonde hair had been arranged by an artist. Her appearance was smart, elegant, daring. She was easily the prettiest and most striking-looking woman in the room, and for an instant Ford stood gazing at her, trying to find in the self-possessed young woman the deserted wife of the steamer. She did not see Ford. Her eyes were following the progress down the hall of a woman, and her profile was toward him. The thought of the happiness he was about to bring to two young people gave Ford the sense of a genuine triumph, and when he turned to Ashton to point out his wife to him, he was thrilling with pride and satisfaction. His triumph received a bewildering shock. Already Ashton had discovered the presence of Mrs. Ashton. He was standing transfixed, lost to his surroundings, devouring her with his eyes. And then, to the amazement of Ford, his eyes filled with fear, doubt, and anger. Swiftly, with the movement of a man ducking a blow, he turned and sprang up the stairs and into the coat room. Ford, bewildered and more conscious of his surroundings, followed him less quickly, and was in consequence only in time to see Ashton, dragging his overcoat behind him, disappear into the courtyard. He seized his own coat and raced in pursuit. As he ran into the courtyard, Ashton, in the strand, was just closing the door of a taxicab. But before the chauffeur could free it from the surrounding traffic, Ford had dragged the door open and leaped inside. Ashton was huddled in the corner, panting, his face pale with alarm. What the devil ails you? roared Ford. Are you trying to shake me? You've got to come back. You must speak to her. Speak to her, repeated Ashton. His voice was sunk to a whisper. The look of alarm in his face was confused with one grim and menacing. Did you know she was there? He demanded softly. Did you take me there knowing? Of course I knew, protested Ford. She's been looking for you. His voice subsided in a squeak of amazement and pain. Ashton's left hand had shot out and swiftly seized his throat. With the other, he pressed an automatic revolver against Ford's shirt front. I know she's been looking for me the man whispered thickly. For two years she's been looking for me. I know all about her, but who in hell are you? 
forward, gasping and gurgling, protested loyally. You are wrong, he cried. She's been at home waiting for you. She thinks you have deserted her and your baby. I tell you she loves you, you fool. She loves you. The fingers on his throat suddenly relaxed. The flaming eyes of Ashton, glaring into his, wavered and grew wide with amazement. Loves me, he whispered. Who loves me? Your wife, protested Ford. The girl at the Savoy, your wife. Again, the fingers of Ashton pressed deep around his neck. That is not my wife, he whispered. His voice was unpleasantly cold and grim. That's baby Belle with her hair dyed, a detective lady of the Pinkertons hired to find me. And you know it. Now who are you? To permit him to reply, Ashton released his hand, but at the same moment, in a sudden access of fear, dug the revolver deeper into the pit of Ford's stomach. Quick, he commanded. Never mind the girl. Who are you? Ford collapsed against the cushioned corner of the cab. And she begged me to find you, he roared, because she loved you, because she wanted to believe in you. He held his arms above his head. Go ahead and shoot, he cried. You want to know who I am? He demanded. His voice rang with rage. I'm an amateur, just a natural-born fool amateur. Go on and shoot. The gun in Ashton's hand sank to his knee. Between doubt and laughter, his face was twisted in strange lines. The cab was whirling through a narrow, unlit street. Opening the door, Ashton called to the chauffeur and then turned to Ford. You get off here, he commanded. Maybe you're pink, maybe you're a good fellow. I think you're a good fellow, but I'm not taking any chances. Get out. Ford scrambled to the street, and as the taxicab again butted itself forward, Ashton leaned far through the window. Goodbye, son, he called. Send me a picture postal card to Paris, for I am off to Maxim's, he cried. And you can go to... Not at all, shouted the amateur detective indignantly. I'm going back to take supper with Baby Bell. From an inexperienced detective to an inexperienced... ghost? The man who gave us a time machine and a Martian invasion brings us this charming tale of a late-night encounter with a spook who is not altogether spooky. Despite the fact that Mary Shelley was there first with possibly the first science fiction novel ever written, H.G. Wells is often called the father of science fiction, along with Jules Verne and Hugo Gernsback. Three fathers to do what one mother did exceedingly well. And speaking of a boys' club, let's join the gentlemen of the Mermaid Club for a beguiling tale of one poor specter. The Story of the Inexperienced Ghost By H.G. Wells The scene amidst which Clayton told his last story comes back very vividly to my mind. There he sat, for the greater part of the time, in the corner of the authentic settle by the spacious open fire, and Sanderson sat beside him, smoking the brosley clay that bore his name. There was Evans, and that marvel among actors, Wish, who was also a modest man. 
We had all come down to the Mermaid Club that Saturday morning, except Clayton, who had slept there overnight, which indeed gave him the opening of his story. We had golfed until golfing was invisible. We had dined, and we were in that mood of tranquil kindliness when men will suffer a story. When Clayton began to tell one, we naturally supposed he was lying. It may be that indeed he was lying, of that the reader will speedily be able to judge as well as I. He began, it is true, with an air of matter-of-fact anecdote, but that, we thought, was only the incurable artifice of the man. I say, he remarked, after a long consideration of the upward rain of sparks from the log that Sanderson had thumped, you know I was alone here last night. Except for the domestics, said Wish. Who sleep in the other wing, said Clayton. Yes, well, he pulled at his cigar for some little time as though he still hesitated about his confidence. Then he said, quite quietly, I caught a ghost. Caught a ghost, did you? said Sanderson. Where is it? And Evans, who admires Clayton immensely and has been four weeks in America, shouted, Caught a ghost, did you, Clayton? I'm glad of it. Tell us all about it right now. Clayton said he would in a minute and asked him to shut the door. He looked apologetically at me. There's no eavesdropping, of course, but we don't want to upset our very excellent service with any rumors of ghosts in the place. There's too much shadow and oak paneling to trifle with that. And this, you know, wasn't a regular ghost. I don't think it will come again, ever. You mean to say you didn't keep it, said Sanderson. I hadn't the heart to, said Clayton. And Sanderson said he was surprised. We laughed, and Clayton looked aggrieved. I know, he said with the flicker of a smile. But the fact is, it really was a ghost. And I'm as sure of it as I am that I am talking to you now. I'm not joking. I mean what I say. Sanderson drew deeply at his pipe with one reddish eye on Clayton and then emitted a thin jet of smoke more eloquent than many words. Clayton ignored the comment. It is the strangest thing that has ever happened in my life. You know, I never believed in ghosts or anything of the sort before, ever. And then, you know, I bag one in a corner and the whole business is in my hands. He meditated still more profoundly and produced and began to pierce a second cigar with a curious little stabber he affected. You talked to it, asked Wish. For the space probably of an hour. Chatty, I said, joining the party of the skeptics. The poor devil was in trouble, said Clayton, bowed over his cigar end and with the very faintest note of reproof. Sobbing, someone asked. Clayton heaved a realistic sigh at the memory. Good Lord, he said, yes. And then, poor fellow, yes. Where did you strike it? Asked Evans in his best American accent. I never realized, said Clayton, ignoring him, the poor sort of thing a ghost might be. And he hung us up again for a time while he sought for matches in his pocket and lit and warmed to his cigar. I took an advantage, he reflected at last. We were none of us in a hurry. A character, he said, remains just the same character for all that it's been disembodied. That's a thing we too often forget. People with a certain strength or fixity of purpose may have ghosts of a certain strength and fixity of purpose. Most haunting ghosts, you know, must be as one-ideaed as monomaniacs and as obstinate as mules to come back again and again. This poor creature wasn't. 
He suddenly looked up rather queerly, and his eye went round the room. I say it, he said, in all kindness, but that is the plain truth of the case. Even at the first glance he struck me as weak. He punctuated with the tip of his cigar. I came upon him, you know, in the long passage. His back was towards me, and I saw him first. Right off I knew him for a ghost. He was transparent and whitish. Clean through his chest I could see the glimmer of the little window at the end. And not only his physique, but his attitude struck me as being weak. He looked, you know, as though he didn't know in the slightest whatever he meant to do. One hand was on the paneling, and the other fluttered to his mouth, like so. What sort of physique? said Sanderson. Lean. You know that sort of young man's neck that has two great flutings down the back, here and here, so? And a little meanish head with scrubby hair and rather bad ears. Shoulders bad, narrower than the hips, a turned-down collar, a ready-made short jacket, trousers baggy and a little frayed at the heels. That's how he took me. I came very quietly up the staircase. I did not carry a light, you know. The candles are on the landing table, and there is that lamp. And I was in my list slippers, and I saw him as I came up. I stopped dead at that, taking him in. I wasn't a bit afraid. I think that in most of these affairs one is never nearly so afraid or excited as one imagines one would be. I was surprised and interested. I thought, good lord, here's a ghost at last, and I haven't believed for a moment in ghosts during the last five and twenty years. Hmm, said Wish. I suppose I wasn't on the landing a moment before he found out I was there. He turned on me sharply, and I saw the face of an immature young man, a weak nose, a scrubby little mustache, a feeble chin. So for an instant we stood, he looking over his shoulder at me and regarded one another. And he seemed to remember his high calling. He turned round, drew himself up, projected his face, raised his arms, and spread his hands in approved ghost fashion, came towards me. As he did so, his little jaw dropped, and he emitted a faint, drawn-out, no, it wasn't, and not a bit dreadful. I'd dined, I'd had a bottle of champagne, and being all alone, perhaps two or three, perhaps even four or five whiskies, so I was as solid as rocks, and no more frightened than if I'd been assailed by a frog. Boo, I said. Nonsense. You don't belong to this place. What are you doing here? I could see him wince. Boo, he said. Boo, be hanged. Are you a member? I said, and just to show I didn't care a pin for him, I stepped through a corner of him and made to light my candle. Are you a member? I repeated, looking at him sideways. He moved a little so as to stand clear of me, and his bearing became crestfallen. No, he said, in answer to the persistent interrogation of my eye. I'm not a member. I'm a ghost. Well, that doesn't give you the run of the mermaid club. Is there anyone you want to see or anything of that sort? and doing it as steadily as possible for fear that he should mistake the carelessness of whiskey for the distraction of fear, I got my candle alight. I turned on him, holding it. What are you doing here? I said. He had dropped his hands and stopped his booing, and there he stood, abashed and awkward, the ghost of a weak, silly, aimless young man. I'm haunting, he said. You haven't any business to, I said in a quiet voice. I'm a ghost, he said as if in defense. That may be, but you haven't any business to haunt here. This is a respectable private club. People often stop here with nursemaids and children, and going about in the careless way you do, some poor little mite could easily come upon you and be scared out of her wits. 
I suppose you didn't think of that. No, sir, he said, I didn't. You should have done. You haven't any claim on the place, have you? Weren't murdered here or anything of that sort? None, sir, but I thought as it was old and oak-paneled. That's no excuse, I regarded him firmly. Your coming here is a mistake, I said, in a tone of friendly superiority. I feigned to see if I had my matches, and then looked up at him frankly. If I were you, I wouldn't wait for Cockcrow. I'd vanish right away. He looked embarrassed. The fact is, sir, he began. I'd vanish, I said, driving it home. The fact is, sir, that somehow I can't. You can't? No, sir. There's something I've forgotten. I've been hanging about here since midnight last night, hiding in the cupboards of the empty bedrooms and things like that. I'm flurried. I've never come haunting before, and it seems to put me out. Put you out? Yes, sir. I've tried to do it several times, and it doesn't come off. There's some little thing has slipped me, and I can't get back. That, you know, rather bowled me over. He looked at me in such an abject way that for the life of me I couldn't keep up quite the high, hectoring vein I had adopted. That's queer, I said. And as I spoke, I fancied I heard someone moving about down below. Come into my room and tell me more about it, I said. I didn't, of course, understand this. And I tried to take him by the arm, but of course you might as well have tried to take hold of a puff of smoke. I had forgotten my number, I think. Anyhow, I remember going into several bedrooms. It was lucky I was the only soul in that wing, until I saw my traps. Here we are, I said, and sat down in the armchair. Sit down and tell me all about it. It seems to me you have got yourself into a jolly awkward position, old chap. Well, he said he wouldn't sit down. He'd prefer to flit up and down the room if it was all the same to me. And so he did. And in a little while we were deep in a long and serious talk. And presently, you know, something of those whiskies and sodas evaporated out of me, and I began to realize just a little what a thundering rum and weird business it was that I was in. There he was, semi-transparent, the proper conventional phantom, and noiseless except for his ghost of a voice, flitting to and fro in that nice, clean, chintz-hung old bedroom. You could see the gleam of the copper candlesticks through him, and the lights on the brass fender, and the corners of the framed engravings on the wall. And there he was, telling me all about this wretched little life of his that had recently ended on earth. He hadn't a particularly honest face, you know, but being transparent, of course, he couldn't avoid telling the truth. Eh? said Wish, suddenly sitting up in his chair. What? said Clayton. Being transparent, uh, couldn't avoid telling the truth. I don't see it, said Wish. I don't see it, said Clayton, with inimitable assurance. But it is so, I can assure you nevertheless. I don't believe he got once a nail's breadth off the Bible truth. He told me how he had been killed. He went down into a London basement with a candle to look for a leakage of gas, and described himself as a senior English master in a London private school when that release occurred. Poor wretch, said I. That's what I thought, and the more he talked, the more I thought it. There he was, purposeless in life and purposeless out of it. He talked of his father and mother and his schoolmaster and all who had ever been anything to him in the world meanly. He had been too sensitive, too nervous. None of them had ever valued him properly or understood him, he said. He had never had a real friend in the world, I think. He had never had a success. He had shirked games and failed examinations. It's like that with some people, he said. 
Whenever I got into the examination room or anywhere, everything seemed to go. Engaged to be married, of course. To another oversensitive person, I suppose, when the indiscretion with the gas escape ended his affairs. And where are you now? I asked. Not in... He wasn't clear on that point at all. The impression he gave me was of a sort of vague, intermediate state. A special reserve for souls too non-existent for anything so positive as either sin or virtue. I don't know. He was much too egotistical and unobservant to give me any clear idea of the kind of place, kind of country there is on the other side of things. Wherever he was, he seems to have fallen in with a set of kindred spirits, ghosts of weak cockney young men who were on a footing of Christian names, and among these there was certainly a lot of talk about going haunting and things like that. Yes, going haunting. They seemed to think haunting a tremendous adventure, and most of them flunked it all the time. And so primed, you know, he had come. But really, said Wish to the fire, these are the impressions he gave me anyhow, said Clayton modestly. I may, of course, have been in a rather uncritical state, but that was the sort of background he gave to himself. He kept flitting up and down with his thin voice going, talking, talking about his wretched self, and never a word of clear, firm statement from first to last. He was thinner and sillier and more pointless than if he had been real and alive. Only then, you know, he would not have been in my bedroom here. If he had been alive, I should have kicked him out. Of course, said Evans, there are poor mortals like that. And there's just as much chance of their having ghosts as the rest of us. I admitted. What gave a sort of point to him, you know, was the fact that he did seem within limits to have found himself out. The mess he had made of haunting had depressed him terribly. He had been told it would be a lark. He had come expecting it to be a lark, and here it was, nothing but another failure added to his record. He proclaimed himself an utter out-and-out -out failure. He said, and I can quite believe it, that he had never tried to do anything all his life that he hadn't made a perfect mess of, and through all the wastes of eternity he never would. If he had had sympathy, perhaps. He paused at that and stood regarding me. He remarked that, strange as it might seem to me, nobody, not anyone ever, had given him the amount of sympathy I was doing now. I could see what he wanted straight away, and I determined to head him off at once. I may be a brute, you know, but being the only real friend, the recipient of the confidences of one of those egotistical weaklings, ghost or body, is beyond my physical endurance. I got up briskly. Don't you brood on these things too much, I said. The thing you've got to do is to get out of this. Sharp. You pull yourself together and try. I can't, he said. You try, I said, and try he did. Try, said Sanderson. How? Passes, said Clayton. Passes? Complicated series of gestures and passes with the hands. That's how he had come in, and that's how he had to get out again. Lord, what a business I had. But how could any series of passes, I began. My dear man, said Clayton, turning on me and putting a great emphasis on certain words. You want everything clear. I don't know how. All I know is that you do. That he did, anyhow, at least. After a fearful time, you know, he got his passes right and suddenly disappeared. Did you, said Sanderson, slowly, observe the passes? Yes, 
said Clayton, and seemed to think. It was tremendously queer, he said. There we were, I and this thin, vague ghost, in that silent room, in this silent, empty inn, in this silent little Friday night town. Not a sound except our voices and a faint panting he made when he swung. There was the bedroom candle and one candle on the dressing table alight. That was all. Sometimes one or other would flare up into a tall, lean, astonished flame for a space, and the queer things happened. I can't, he said. I shall never. And suddenly he sat down on a little chair at the foot of the bed and began to sob and sob. Lord, what a harrowing, whimpering thing he seemed. You pull yourself together, I said, and tried to pat him on the back, and my confounded hand went through him. By that time, you know, I wasn't nearly so massive as I had been on the landing. I got the queerness of it full. I remember snatching back my hand out of him, as it were, with a little thrill, and walking over to the dressing table. You pull yourself together, I said to him, and try. And in order to encourage and help him, I began to try as well. What? said Sanderson. The passes? Yes, the passes. But, I said, moved by an idea that eluded me for a space. This is interesting, said Sanderson with his finger in his pipe bowl. You mean to say this ghost of yours gave away, did his level best to give away the whole confounded barrier? Yes. He didn't, said Wish. He couldn't, or you would have gone there too. That's precisely it, I said, finding my elusive idea put into words for me. That is precisely it, said Clayton, with thoughtful eyes upon the fire. For just a little while there was silence. And at last he did it, said Sanderson. At last he did it. I had to keep him up to it hard, but he did it at last, rather suddenly. He despaired, we had a scene, and then he got up abruptly and asked me to go through the whole performance, slowly, so that he might see. I believe, he said, if I could see, I should spot what was wrong at once. And he did. I know, he said. What do you know? said I. I know, he repeated. Then he said peevishly, I can't do it if you look at me. I really can't. It's been that partly all along. I'm such a nervous fellow that you put me out. Well, we had a bit of an argument. Naturally, I wanted to see, but he was as obstinate as a mule, and suddenly I had come over as tired as a dog. He tired me out. All right, I said. I won't look at you and turned towards the mirror on the wardrobe by the bed. He started off very fast. I tried to follow him by looking in the looking-glass to see just what it was had hung. Round went his arms and his hands, so and so and so, and then with a rush came to the last gesture of all. You stand erect and open out your arms. And so, don't you know, he stood. And then he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't. I wheeled round from the looking-glass to him. There was nothing. I was alone with the flaring candles and a staggering mind. What had happened? Had anything happened? Had I been dreaming? And then, with an absurd note of finality about it, the clock upon the landing discovered the moment was ripe for striking one. So, ping! And I was as grave and sober as a judge, with all my champagne and whiskey gone into the vast serene. Feeling queer, you know. Confoundedly queer. Queer, good lord. 
He regarded his cigar ash for a moment. That's all that happened, he said. And then you went to bed? asked Evans. What else was there to do? I looked Wish in the eye. We wanted to scoff, and there was something, something perhaps in Clayton's voice and manner that hampered our desire. And about these passes, said Sanderson. I believe I could do them now. Oh, said Sanderson. Why don't you do them now? That's what I'm going to do, said Clayton. They won't work, said Evans. If they do, I suggested. You know, I'd rather you didn't, said Wish, stretching out his legs. Why? asked Evans. I'd rather he didn't, said Wish. But he hasn't got him right, said Sanderson. All the same, I'd rather he didn't, said Wish. We argued with Wish. He said that for Clayton to go through those gestures was like mocking a serious matter. But you don't believe, I said. Wish glanced at Clayton, who was staring into the fire, weighing something in his mind. I do. More than half, anyhow, I do, said Wish. Clayton, said I, you're too good a liar for us. Most of it was all right, but that disappearance happened to be convincing. Tell us it's a tale of cock and bull. He stood up without heeding me, took the middle of the hearthrug, and faced me. For a moment he regarded his feet thoughtfully and then for all the rest of the time his eyes were on the opposite wall with an intent expression. He raised his two hands slowly to the level of his eyes, and so began. Now Sanderson is a Freemason, a member of the Lodge of the Four Kings, which devotes itself so ably to the study and elucidation of all the mysteries of masonry past and present. And among the students of this lodge, Sanderson is by no means the least. He followed Clayton's motions with a singular interest in his reddish eye. That's not bad, he said when it was done. You really do, you know, put things together, Clayton, in a most amazing fashion. But there's one little detail out. I know, said Clayton. I believe I could tell you which. Well? This, said Clayton, and did a queer little twist and writhing and thrust of the hands. Yes. That, you know, is what he couldn't get right, said Clayton. But how do you, most of this business, and particularly how you invented it, I don't understand at all, said Sanderson. But just that phase, I do, he reflected. These happen to be a series of gestures connected with a certain branch of esoteric masonry. Probably you know, or else how, he reflected still further. I do not see I can do any harm in telling you just the proper twist, after all, if you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. I know nothing, said Clayton, except what the poor devil let out last night. Well, anyhow, said Sanderson, and placed his churchwarden very carefully upon the shelf over the fireplace. Then very rapidly he gesticulated with his hands. So, said Clayton, repeating. So, said Sanderson, and took his pipe in hand again. Ah, now, said Clayton, I can do the whole thing. Right. He stood up before the waning fire and smiled at us all. But I think there was just a little hesitation in his smile. If I begin, he said. I wouldn't begin, said Wish. It's all right, said Evans. Matter is indestructible. You don't think any jiggery-pokery of this sort is going to snatch Clayton into the world of shades? Not it. 
You may try, Clayton, so far as I'm concerned, until your arms drop off at the wrists. I don't believe that, said Wish, and stood up and put his arm on Clayton's shoulder. You've made me half believe in that story somehow, and I don't want to see the thing done. Goodness, said I, here's Wish frightened. I am, said Wish, with real or admirably feigned intensity. I believe that if he goes through these motions right, he'll go. He'll not do anything of the sort, I cried. There's only one way out of this world for men, and Clayton is thirty years from that. Besides, and such a ghost. Do you think... Wish interrupted me by moving. He walked out from among our chairs and stopped beside the toll and stood there. Clayton, he said, you're a fool. Clayton, with a humorous light in his eyes, smiled back at him. Wish, he said, is right, and all you others are wrong. I shall go. I shall get to the end of these passes, and as the last swish whistles through the air, presto, this hearthrug will be vacant, the room will be blank amazement, and a respectably dressed gentleman of fifteen stone will plump into the world of shades. I'm certain. So will you be. I decline to argue further. Let the thing be tried. No, said Wish, and made a step and ceased, and Clayton raised his hands once more to repeat the spirit's passing. By that time, you know, we were all in a state of tension, largely because of the behavior of Wish. We sat all of us with our eyes on Clayton, I, at least, with a sort of tight, stiff feeling about me, as though from the back of my skull to the middle of my thighs my body had been changed to steel. And there, with a gravity that was imperturbably serene, Clayton bowed and swayed and waved his hands and arms before us. As he drew towards the end, one piled up, one tingled in one's teeth. The last gesture, I have said, was to swing the arms out wide open, with the face held up. And when at last he swung out to this closing gesture, I ceased even to breathe. It was ridiculous, of course, but you know that ghost story feeling. It was after dinner in a queer old shadowy house. Would he, after all? There he stood for one stupendous moment, with his arms open and his upturned face assured and bright in the glare of the hanging lamp. We hung through that moment as if it were an age and then came from all of us something that was half a sigh of infinite relief and half a reassuring no. For visibly, he wasn't going. It was all nonsense. He had told an idle story and carried it almost to conviction. That was all. And then, in that moment, the face of Clayton changed. It changed. It changed as a lit house changes when its lights are suddenly extinguished. His eyes were suddenly eyes that were fixed. His smile was frozen on his lips, and he stood there still. He stood there, very gently swaying. That moment, too, was an age. And then, you know, chairs were scraping, things were falling, and we were all moving. His knees seemed to give, and he fell forward, and Evans rose and caught him in his arms. It stunned us all. For a minute, I suppose, no one said a coherent thing. We believed it, yet could not believe it. I came out of a muddled stupefaction to find myself kneeling beside him, and his vest and shirt were torn open, and Sanderson's hand lay on his heart. Well, the simple fact before us could very well wait our convenience. There was no hurry for us to comprehend. It lay there for an hour. It lies athwart my memory, black and amazing still to this day. 
Clayton had, indeed, passed into the world that lies so near to and so far from our own, and he had gone thither by the only road that mortal man may take. But whether he did indeed pass there by that poor ghost's incantation, or whether he was stricken suddenly by apoplexy in the midst of an idle tale, as the coroner's jury would have us believe, is no matter for my judging. It is just one of those inexplicable riddles that must remain unsolved until the final solution of all things shall come. All I certainly know is that in the very moment, in the very instant of concluding those passes, he changed and staggered and fell down before us, dead. Erroneously titled or not, I do like the H.G. Wells. I try not to schedule things that are too British at the moment, because I'm not sure how jarring it sounds being read by an American. But considering just how much of the material I have is written by esteemed authors from the United Kingdom, there will be more, and we'll just have to make the best of it. Next week is a Canadian author, and a real Canadian to read her. Lucy Maud Montgomery finally makes an appearance on the Marazine, and we are fortunate enough to have Avon back to do her justice. You don't want to miss it. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayorzine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayorzine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.